We're going to come back into uh, Proverbs this morning, and we're going to finish up what we were looking at last week, and then uh, move on to another section of the book. But as we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to be with us this morning. Father, once again, we want to thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Father, for that grace which is shown to us in your word. It is a gift to us. The God who has created all things has condescended to communicate with his creatures. That in itself, Father, is an amazing thing. And yet, when we look at the content of your word, Father, the more amazing it becomes because it is a word that is filled with grace. It explains to us, Father, who we are. It explains who you are, more importantly, and how we can come into a relationship with you, how we can please you, Father, how you have created us, what you have created us to be. So, Father, as we once again spend this morning focused upon your word to us, we pray that your spirit would work within us, that we might understand, that the truth would be clarified for us, that it might be applied to us, Father, so that we might change from that which we are now to that which you desire us to become. In all of this, Father, we ask your grace upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, we were looking at Proverbs chapter, chapters 5 through 7. We're taking that as a piece. We are, um, and those chapters, as we, we saw, this whole section of Proverbs is dealing specifically with sexual sin. And so we looked at this in terms first of the warning that it gives us that we ought not fall into sexual sin. And we pointed out, of course, that Solomon uh, is well acquainted with this subject, even though he was, uh, <laughs> shall we say, inconsistent <laughs> in living out what he is now telling his, his son. Uh, and yet, what he says, of course, is true for us. And Solomon warned his son, we said last time, of two specific uh, ways in which he can be tempted to fall. And one, we said, was words, and the other was looks. And these are the things that, of course, uh, continue uh, to tempt and to draw into that kind of sin. We then looked at the consequence of not heeding that warning, and those consequences come out in two different ways. There are the temporal consequences, consequences that come into present life because of our disobedience to the standards that God has set forth. When sexual activity is engaged in and pursued outside of the bonds which God has provided for that activity, consequences will come. 
and those consequences take place in our present life. We spoke about consequences such as destroyed relationships um, and also physical uh, consequences as well. Uh, we may, in fact, lose um, health as a result of this, as we've seen here in this passage. Uh, but the other part of that is that consequences do not simply come temporally, but also eternally. If um, one pursues this kind of sin, is controlled by it, well, obviously then they are not being controlled by the Spirit of God. And it says something about the, uh, the spiritual nature of their their lives. And so all of that, which we looked at last week, raises a very important question which we were not able to get to last week. And that is, how do we defend ourselves against this? What are those things which Solomon puts forth as advice to his son uh, in regard to how we escape these dangers? And as we will see, Solomon really gives two different ways of looking at this, two different ways of uh, dealing with this problem. The first we can describe as vertical, and then the second as horizontal. Actually, let me reverse those. We'll deal with the horizontal first, and then we'll deal with the, the vertical. Uh, the horizontal relationship is the relationship that we have with other people, particularly guard our spouse. And the vertical is our relationship with God and how that comes into play. So let's take a look at this. If you come back again to chapter 5 of Proverbs, and like last week, we're not just going through systematically, um, uh, but we're looking at different portions of all of these passages. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 15, says this, Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? So the first thing that we're looking at here in regard to Solomon's counsel to his son and to us is that the antidote to sexual sin is sexual satisfaction with one's spouse. True intimacy is to be found in that kind of exclusivity. Uh, you become an expert in the one person that you are committed to for a lifetime. And this is what uh, uh, the Scripture counsels all the way through. So, you know, Paul uses this same idea in 1 Corinthians when he exhorts the Corinthians to flee 
sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he says one aspect of that is to enjoy sexual intimacy within those boundaries which God has established, which of course is marriage. And Paul gets rather specific there. Uh, why don't we turn there and take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and just remind ourselves of what Paul tells us. Let's start with the very beginning of the chapter. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Now concerning the thing about which you wrote, it is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So let's, we can just stop there for a few minutes, right? Sexual sin and the struggle with sexual sin and, and, and the understanding of sexuality in itself is not a 21st century deal. <laughs> the first century church at Corinth was asking these same questions that people today are dealing with. Nothing new under the sun. Human nature does not change. The nature of temptation and struggle does not change. It is a part of humanity. It is a part of who we are in our fallenness. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to me because you listen to some, some people uh, speak as if the world is progressing, right? That's a big word in our day. We're making progress. We're making progress. And yet you look around and you see the same issues afflicting people today in the 21st century that you did in the ancient world. Lots of things change, but not human nature. Not the struggles and the temptations that we face. And so this is what Paul is having to deal with. The church is asking Paul these questions. And this is Paul's response. Concerning the things about which you wrote, Paul isn't just bringing this up himself. He's responding to things that the Corinthians are asking him. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am, as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. Now when Paul says, I wish you know, everybody was as I am, He's going to come back to that idea later in the chapter. And his, his thinking there is not that singleness is somehow superior to marriage. Paul's focus, remember, is on the kingdom. 
Paul's focus is on the gospel going out. So when Paul says, I wish everyone were as I am, he later goes on to explain that you know, if, if you're single, um, then you can focus your entire life on service, on, on the Lord. Whereas when you get married, you have a spouse, and, and you, you, know, you, have, you have children, well, your attention is divided. You can't spend all of your, your energy, as Paul does, on, um, on the Lord and on serving in the kingdom. Now, note Paul says this is not a command. Paul's not commanding people either to marry or to remain single. In fact, he says there that singleness is a gift. Most people don't have that gift. So Paul says, come together, get married. So Paul is not contradicting anything that we see elsewhere in Scripture. He's not saying God made a mistake back with creation when you know, he brought a man and a woman together and said, be fruitful and multiply. Paul doesn't have any issue with that. That's a good thing. It's everything there, there is fine. But Paul is recognizing certain realities. Because not everyone has the gift of singleness, it is good to, get, to, to be married so that there will not be temptation. And again, Paul's going to go into that in more detail as he goes along in this chapter. But in this regard, what we're seeing here and what goes along with what Solomon says there in chapter 5 is that God has created um, sexuality to be exercised within marriage. That is the safe place for the expression of our sexuality. And that is a good thing. You go back through church history. One of the things that you will find is that at various points throughout church history, um, singleness, virginity, is raised up to this you know, level at which the normal life uh, of people within marriage is seen as something lower and perhaps even in some sense, although they don't come out and say it's sinful, it's, it's kind of dirty. <laughs> and of course, that's not the biblical understanding at all. Yes. Yeah. Exactly right. 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 Whereas, you know, the, the whole idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary comes out that idea that, you know, somehow um, uh, sexual activity is is inherently sketchy. 
you know, we, uh, and, and when you're looking at that idea, you know, you, you, you look at this doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity and what, what is really going on there, right? If you're not familiar with that, um, it is the teaching that after Mary gave birth to Christ, she remained a virgin. So throughout her marriage to Joseph, um, there was no hanky-panky going on, right? um, which, of course, huge problem here for Joseph, right? huge problem because it's contradicting everything Paul says. Right? You, you cannot have, here, here's, here's an interesting dilemma um, that the church gets into in talking about this. You cannot at the same time have the perpetual virginity of Mary and the sinlessness of Mary. Because if she is perpetually virgin, she is disobeying the direct command of God through the Apostle Paul. Okay. So that's a problem. Well, yes. I mean, there are... <laughs> right, right. There, there, yeah, there are two explanations, actually. One, Janet just mentioned, that, they, that Joseph had been married previously. He was a widower, and he had children from a previous marriage. That's one. And the other is that they're not really brothers and sisters. They're cousins. So that's another another way to try well yeah exactly right I mean the words that are used in scripture are not there is a word for cousin if that's what was intended it could have been used and it it, it wasn't so you know there, there has been this struggle throughout the history of the church um, in keeping a biblical balance a biblical understanding of of where sexuality fits in to the Christian life. And often uh, there have been periods in the church where um, Christians have tried to be holier than God, and that's never a good thing. Right? We, want, we want to know what is righteousness. If you try to be holier than God, we have a word for that. It's called legalism. So we want to understand God, as has already been said, created man and woman, and what he created was good. And he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. So you cannot have fruitfulness and multiplication being a good thing while looking askance at the way that you obtain fruitfulness and multiplication. So Paul just wants to put it right out there. It is dangerous to withhold sex from one another in marriage because it raises temptation. Sexual intimacy is intended to bind together the husband and wife in a way 
that is not true of our relationship with anyone else. Paul will say, will we'll talk elsewhere about you know, being joined to a prostitute. And he's, you know, he, he talks about that in contrast to being joined to one's wife. Like how can this even be a possibility? Right? Coming together with one's spouse does something in that relationship. It binds two together in a way that doesn't work outside of marriage and isn't intended to. And you see this working itself out in, in the culture. When you look at, you know, there have been all kinds of studies done. And what they demonstrate is that when people engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, their chances of having a successful marriage at some point plummet. And they are, in fact, um, if not unable, it makes it much more difficult to bond with one particular person when one has previously, even if it's only physically, bonded with others. There is not only a physical bonding that takes place in marriage, but that physical bonding leads to an emotional bonding. This is how God has designed things. And when you are bonding with this person and that person, the other person, that ability to come together with one person is much more difficult. Not that it can't be done. God can accomplish these things. Repentance certainly helps. But this is what we've seen, right? This is one of the reasons why the sexual revolution and divorce have gone hand in hand. Because these kinds of things have a very practical effect. And this is what Paul is saying, because he knows what Solomon had said. Marriage is the place that God has designed for the expression of our sexuality. The book of Hebrews, of course, talks about the marriage bed being undefiled. Well, why is it stated that way? It's stated that way because it's intended to give us a contrast. The marriage bed is undefiled. Every other bed is not. Every other bed is Defiled. Of course, the marriage bed is just being used as a metaphor for our, our sexuality. So, if we come back to Proverbs uh, chapter 5, Solomon's using very graphic imagery here when he says uh, in verse 15, for instance, don't drink water from your own cistern. And he says the same thing, or I'm sorry, drink water from your own cistern. Right? He says... <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, when I say things that are obviously wrong, just turn them around in your head because they're obviously turned around in mine. Um, drink water 
from your own cistern. And he's, he's using images, and he, he's repeating the same thing in different ways. Right? Water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Um, you know, comes down, verse eight, verse 18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice or take pleasure, some translations would say, and I think that fits the context um, uh, better there. He exhorts his son in verse 19 to be satisfied with the breasts of his wife and no one else's. Uh, Tremper Longman is a uh, an Old Testament scholar. I don't know where he teaches now. I think he used to be at Westminster uh, Seminary. And in his commentary on Proverbs, he says, the best defense against committing adultery is a strong offense in marriage. So take that as an additional metaphor to Solomon. Now, understand, as, as you read through this, as we did, verses 15 through 20, how often does Solomon mention procreation? Never. Never. This is another thing that you see periodically throughout church history. Sex is only for procreation. If you're not planning on having a child, don't engage, even within marriage. That has been something that aspects of the church have, have taught, right? Apparently not for Solomon. Right? In this entire discussion, there's not a thing said about children. Now, children, obviously, he's speaking to one of his sons, so we understand that these two are connected. And there will be other discussions about that throughout Proverbs and throughout the book. But he doesn't even mention it here. He simply mentions satisfaction, contentment, joy. That's all connected with this. God gave sex as a good gift to be enjoyed within the bonds of marriage. It is when it is engaged in outside of those boundaries then that it becomes a problem and we end up with the consequences that we were talking about last week. Now, so that's one. That's kind of the major horizontal remedy for the problem. Vertically, you see in chapter 7 and verse 4, say to wisdom... You are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. Now, let's read around that to get to get the context, because we, we, we've said chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, it's all of a piece. So we're all we're still talking about the issue of sexuality. It says, my son, keep my words, treasure my commandments within you, keep my commandments and live, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of, of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, 
that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. So you've got this situation where the immoral woman is the rival to the father. Who is the son going to listen to? She is the rival to wisdom. This immoral woman, as we're seeing now, is a major character in Proverbs. She stands for a literal person with whom the son may engage in sinful, unfaithful sexual union. She is also personified as folly. We've seen folly spoken about before. This is a woman who personifies foolishness. If the son embraces this forbidden woman, it will be revealed that he has rejected, by doing so, the wisdom of his father. He has rejected wisdom as wisdom is portrayed as a woman. So what you're seeing are two women, and the son is going to choose the woman foolishness or the woman wisdom. And adultery, then, is the distortion of the most intimate human relationship, and to engage in that act is foolishness. That's really the whole point of this passage, that choice that has to be made. And it's going to affect, then, right, we'd be talking about the vertical and the horizontal. If we reject the wisdom which God has given, it doesn't only affect our relationship with God, it affects our relationship on the horizontal basis as, as well. And that comes out. You know, this whole first section of Proverbs, in chapters 1 through, through 9, that's really, if, you were, if we were going to boil it down to one point, that would be it. If our horizontal relationships are off, it reveals that our vertical relationship is off as well. Those two things are connected. And Solomon knows this because the foreign women that he was intimate with led him into idolatry and caused him problems on the horizontal level and on the vertical level. And so he's giving uh, wisdom to his son, essentially saying, do what I say, not what I do. The reality is he's saying, do what God says, not what I do. That's a good thing for all of us to remember when we're trying to counsel someone against acting foolishly. Right? Yeah, don't, don't worry about whether my life matches up with what I'm saying. It doesn't. But this is the wisdom God has given to us. And so follow that. And that's exactly what Solomon desires for his son. So there is a real adulteress who can tempt the son, but the woman folly stands behind the adulteress. The adulteress is just one expression of that folly, which manifests itself in every area 
of life or desires to. In the context of the whole Bible, we know that, uh, that wisdom points to Christ. And if that's the case, folly is pointing us to Satan. One of the things we've been seeing in our study of Revelation, the entire book of Revelation is about that contrast. So everyone who is, every human being spoken of in Revelation falls into one of two groups, followers of the Lamb or earth dwellers. Those who are aligned with Christ and pursuing him or those who are aligned with the dragon and pursuing obedience to him. Our pursuit of either wisdom or folly is going to reveal who we are. And this is what Solomon is trying to get through to his son. Pursue a relationship with wisdom rather than a relationship with folly. Who will you choose to follow? Who will you choose to marry? Who will you choose to befriend? All of these are decisions that can be described as either foolish or wise. And so he's constantly bringing his son back to these things. Your vertical relationship is going to affect your horizontal relationship. And if you're pursuing the wrong horizontal relationship, it's going to affect your vertical relationship. You can't separate those. I know a lot of people try. There is this idea in the minds of many that we can separate the normal things of life from the religious things of life. Many of us grew up in churches where this was pretty obvious. You have people coming into church on a, a Sunday morning and they haven't given the slightest thought about anything in spiritual terms throughout the week. They've been going out and doing what, you know, I, I grew up in a very um, uh, heavily Catholic neighborhood. And among, I was going to say my friends, but their parents too, uh, this was the whole idea. You just go through, you live your life, you do whatever you want, and then you jump into the confessional, and you go to Mass, and everything's wiped clean, and then you can start again. And you don't have to think about anything until the next time it's, you know, you're ready to go to confession or, or mass. And that's not only a Catholic thing. I grew up in a liberal Presbyterian church, and it was the same idea. I, that was essentially you know, the environment in which I grew up in my family. There's this hour or so on a Sunday morning, and that's separate from everything else. And they really don't have anything to do with each other. Right? Obviously, that's not a biblical understanding, is it? I, I find it's awesome to like, forget that people who 
your normal body and rational thought. You have to right. work from a you know, spirituality, the leap of faith. You don't expect to be rational. You have to perfectly intelligent people who go to church on Sunday, but they don't think they have to use their mind. You know, or, or they don't go to church on Sunday, and they, and they think it's a whole different thing. Or you're talking about spiritual things, and, and they don't realize it's all one. Right. And it's a dangerous mode to be in. And you have your spiritual justification for all these things, and you don't realize you're not just God calls us to use our minds. It's not like our, our faith is a, is a setting aside of our, our intellect. Yeah, exactly. And you know, th this comes out, what you hear so often today, about spirituality. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And of course, what that inevitably means is I want to do things the way I want to do I don't want an authoritative God who is going to um, hold me accountable for obeying his word, his law. If I just say I'm spiritual, then I can kind of be religious, but have none of the accountability because there's no objectivity to my spirituality. My spirituality is whatever I want it to be. And essentially, it's how do I feel today? You know, let me meditate for a while, and um, that's it. And as followers of Christ, of course, um, that's just, just certainly not an option for us. God has given us an understanding of who he is and how he has created the world. And this is what we're going to talk about when we come into the next chapter as well. We understand the world and we understand the place of sexuality because God has told us how he has created the world, how he has created us, and how he has designed us for a proper exercise of that gift of sexuality. When we cast off what God has said, what are we left with? We're left with a devolvement to animal instinct, and we're left with what the culture has and is becoming now. Because there are no constraints. If God has not said, then there's nobody to tell me. Who are you to impose upon me? I've just been having a conversation with an atheist, and um, we've been going around and around on this. I'm, I don't think it's going to continue much longer because at this point we're just repeating ourselves. And um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a response. I'm trying to get an answer to this very issue. If there's no God, let's just take for a moment the contention that there is, that, that the atheist universe, the atheist worldview, the atheist understanding is correct. There is nothing but matter. How do you derive morality from that? And I can 
I've only been able to get him to tell me how things are. But there's no way for him to take the next step and tell me the basis for how things ought to be. So he can say, well, yeah, Hitler, Hitler was wrong. Pedophilia was wrong. And individuals understand that pain is bad and compassion is good. And my response is in various ways of trying to get this through, saying, well, yeah, nobody's denying that an atheist can be compassionate. My question is, under your worldview, how do you even use terms like good and bad? Now, why is that? I'll throw it out. We've spoken about this a bit before. Why is that a problem for the atheist? Why can an atheist not not use those terms and still be consistent with his worldview? Okay, so there, that's, that's the first step, right? Um, it ends up with the individual. And what is the individual doing when he speaks in terms of good or evil? Okay, right. So he's making his own decisions, right? Putting on his own scale. It's, 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 it's coming back to what he thinks, his own opinion, right? He compares himself with other things and other people in the world. If you are coming from that atheist perspective, what are you? You are a bag of molecules. That's it. Ultimately, that is it. You are a bag of what Greg Bonson referred to as biological stuff. With a fixed lifespan. Right. So, I walk up to my brother, I pull out a knife, and I plunge it into Joe's heart. What's wrong with that? I am one bag of molecules, right? Somehow interacting with another bag of molecules. And this bag of molecules doesn't even go out of existence. It just changes form. Because matter doesn't disappear, right? Matter just changes. And so, you know, Joe would turn into dust. 
So how, where do you, in, in that system, where do you get the ought? How can you tell someone? It would be wrong for you to plunge a knife into Joe's chest. And my question would be, on what basis would that be wrong? The only reason you have that thought is because the chemical reactions in your brain, your particular set of molecules are telling you that. But my particular set of molecules are telling me, plunge a knife into Joe's chest. Why are your molecules more authoritative than mine? Right. So, 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 so the, the other argument that typically comes up in these discussions is, well, society decides. Then, of course, you have to ask the question, which society? The antebellum South was a society that decided it was okay to enslave people. Nazi Germany was a society. They decided it was okay to kill Jews. And then, of course, you know, there's the hemming and hawing, and, well, you know, not just... Nazi Germany isn't a society within themselves. They're part of Western society. <laughs> All right. You know, when you end up having to, you know, make all of these qualifications for your position you probably have a problem. But this is what we're seeing today. Because there was a time when Western civilization was based upon a revealed will from a creator who has authority over his creation. And now that that has gone by the wayside, everything's up for grabs. Everything's open. So, back when they determined that same-sex marriage is now legal, I mean, there were lots of responses to that. One of the responses is, all right, so you've just taken away any boundary. Now there is no rational reason to keep polygamy outlawed. And 
what we're seeing, of course, are the arguments being made for that now. And in other countries, I think they've already done away with any prohibition against polygamy. And we're, of course, also seeing arguments made for pedophilia. Well, we don't want to call them pedophiles anymore. They are minor attracted persons. Because we don't want to hurt the feelings of people who are going to abuse children. So you begin with the, with, with, with the, the disregard of any absolute objective standard beyond the individual. And you end up with horror. It'll be couched, and we've seen this so often, it's couched in terminology which communicates compassion and care and lofty goals. But the result is evil and wickedness. And if you want an example, you just look at the 20th century. Right? In, in, in communism, there's a, you know, it, it, they, they, they speak of this wonderful utopia. This is the goal. Everybody's going to have whatever they want and somehow not have to work for it either. But it, the details are really fuzzy, but the goal is there. But in order to get to the goal, we've got to deal with these people who aren't on board with getting to the goal. And so, we've got to have some gulags <laughs> to send people to. And we've got to have these wars, and we've got to institute famines and get rid of all those people and these people and these other people. And that's, that's where it goes, right? And that's what we're seeing happen now. We've got this societal decline because we have cast off the restraint of objective, authoritative truth. No, it's not good. But you talked about how, how we defend ourselves against the sexual sin. Mm -hmm. And the, the example of marriage and that you could consider and those are great. It's great, but when you're in a marriage relationship. But I think one of the things that is again to deal with Lori, who are perhaps elderly, who probably would have a different opinion about this. We need to, as Christians, delight in God and delight in his law. You can't just abstain. It's not enough to just not, because we're sinful people and our and we have fleshly desires and, and it's just 
Which is, which is why Solomon does this, right? The horizontal and the vertical. And if the horizontal isn't at this moment an, an option, you immerse yourself in the vertical until that comes about. Which again, wish we had more time. You know, you, 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 one of the, the problems that we've also caused ourselves is by romanticizing marriage, which seems like a weird thing. But you look down through, through history, and in less prosperous times, marriage was not so heavily romanticized. It was, there, there was a heavily pragmatic aspect of marriage. And so we're, you know, you get back before a certain point, and you will look in vain for any discussion of falling in love. No, you know, maybe someone's um, spouse died, there are kids to raise, you know, let me find someone you know, that needs a wife, and he needs, and she needs a husband, and They'll get together on a very kind of almost business-like basis. And part of that was safeguarding sexuality when people thought that was worth doing. But Eric is exactly right. It it is the vertical that that comes first. Is that my my priority? All right, then we're going to look at at these other things. Let me just wrap all this up um, this morning just by reminding ourselves because we're human beings and I assume there may be somebody among us that has struggled with sexual sin I don't know just an assumption on my part here's the good news Jesus Christ died so that we could be forgiven of all our sin, including sexual sin, and so that we could be satisfied in Him. By the power of the Spirit of Christ and transformed, renewed hearts, our lives can reflect that which God speaks to us and portrays for us in His Word. That which is good, that which is profitable, that which is going to work for our satisfaction and our contentment. And there, even in this discussion, is great grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We are grateful. And we thank you, Father, once again, as we prayed earlier, we thank you that you have indeed spoken. And we are not left to our own devices. We thank you, Father, that we have your word, and we pray that we would be a witness to the world of the truth, Father, which you have spoken. We pray this, Father, in the name of Christ, whose name we desire to be magnified. Amen.
seen someone missing the last couple of weeks. Feel okay?
Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. It's good to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Uh, We just uh, want to uh, bring to your attention uh, a few things. A couple of them are in uh, the bulletin. Uh, The women's study on the names of God will uh, continue again on September 9th at 11 o'clock. And uh, as always, that takes place in the classroom uh, back here behind the piano. And also on September 10th, we'll be having uh, our church picnic at uh, FDR Park. And so uh, we will uh, let you know of uh, more details concerning that. Uh, But most of what you need to know is already there in your bulletin. So please pay attention to that. And uh, we look forward to a good afternoon together there on the 10th. Um, We're coming to the end of the summer, of course, Uh, so there are a lot of uh, folks making their uh, last-minute escapes before real life begins, Uh, and as a result, uh, we're going to uh, not be having our Going Deeper uh, this month, uh, or our men's breakfast Labor Day weekend for that matter, but we'll pick up with that uh, in September. So... Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 5 says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 31, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Father God, we are so grateful that you have come in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. God has appeared In this world, the glory of the Lord has been revealed, and we are so grateful. We thank you, Father, for your spirit and the way your spirit has drawn us to your son. And through your son, Father, he has given us new life. And having given us new life, Father, he has bound us together In unity, we have union with your Son, and therefore, Father, we are yours, adopted by you to be your children and connected one to another as brothers and sisters. So in this way, Father, we come before you today as your people. We recognize as well, Father, this day that not everyone who may be among us is of your people. And so we pray, Father, that by your Spirit, through the proclamation of your word and the gospel, that you might accomplish that gracious work and draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself, even today. Build your church, Father, we ask. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
Let's stand together as we sing. remain standing for the reading of God's word from Ezekiel chapter 3. All right, reading Ezekiel 3, verses 4 through 15. It's on pages 589 to 590 in the Pew Bibles. And let me bring it up myself here. Ezekiel 3, verses 4 through 15. Then he said to me, Son of man, Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you, and listen closely. 
Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them, whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Please be seated. This is the word of God. Oh, did I miss one? Oh, oh I'm sorry. I, I stopped at 14. Let me add it. And the, you can still sit down, but I'll, I'll add 15 on there. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. Um, then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Kebar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. All right. So we're continuing our, our reading of the book of Ezekiel and hearing how God has been speaking to Ezekiel and giving him a word to say to the people. And here we find ourselves, not surprisingly, having, he's having a similar experience to what other, other prophets have had before him. We read the book of Jeremiah, and he was told by God real clearly, you're going to preach to them, and they're not going to listen. This is exactly what happened to, to Moses in Exodus. Um, you know, he spoke to the people, and, he, and the, the people grumbled against him. The people didn't listen. Their hearts were hardened. And there are continual issues. So in this case, God told Ezekiel that he was going to give him a, a face as hard as their face and a forehead as hard as their forehead. And sometimes I think the application here is for us, as we're preaching the gospel, we can kind of expect that it's not going to always be well received. And the Lord will give us the strength and the power to declare it clearly and fully, even though we know the reception is not going to necessarily be what we might hope. Um, these are the people of God. These are not people that should, these are people should have known. They've, they've seen God acting. They've, seen, they've heard the word. They've, they've been under the teaching. Um, but yet they are not willing to listen. And... The physical symptoms that we hear here, the hard face, the hard forehead. When I see the hard face, we're thinking about a face that's not going to respond. No emotion. They're not going to let it touch them. Their minds, their heart, their forehead is hard. They're not going to let it penetrate their minds. They're going to let the word of God wash over them. And that's what we're seeing in this. So the, the unfortunate thing with, with this response, as we hear other, other places in scriptures, when people of God... Don't listen. It's not a passive response. As we read in, in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God works in them to bring it... I mean, sorry. When they don't listen, the, um, their, their hearts are hardened against the Lord, and they, they turn against Him. So I'm going to read to you from 2 Kings 17, 17-23. An example of what happened with the people of God when the prophets kept teaching... But they would not listen. So 2 Kings 17 reads like this. 17, 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised the statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens 
and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking them to anger. So when we don't listen, it's not just like we're not going to grow, but we're actually going to turn our hearts away. When the people of God did not listen, when they hardened their hearts, it's fundamentally a faithless act. It's saying, you know, Lord, we're going to do what we're going to do. We don't want to hear the word of the Lord. And unfortunately, when we do that, we're not left alone. <laughs> that act has consequences. And the consequences mean we'll go further into, into our sin and into sin we hadn't perceived before. So this is nothing new. Um, Ezekiel's acting um, in God's behalf. And the people of Israel, unfortunately, are, are basically confirming the judgment that God has made on them. This is why they, you know, these, these people, as we read before, are already they're exiled. And then God is in the process of working out his judgment upon the people of Israel. Now, fortunately, um, there's two other final things I want to bring about, um, talk about. What is the content that we're supposed to listen to? The content here is, is the gospel. Um, we just read last week about how he, there's a, a, a scroll that he ate. And that's similar to the language in Revelation where God comes with a, with a book. And that book is the gospel. Um, the word of God, the, the redemption for, for mankind through his son. So, as I mentioned, this lack of listening is fundamentally a failure of faith. And the gospel is a gospel of faith as well. Um, in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever, eternal life. And also for, from First John, we read that... Um, this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. And that's the key. When you have faith, you listen. If you have faith, if you believe that Christ is on his throne, you're going to try to understand what he's saying to you, and then you're going to obey it, because that's where our faith brings us to. So praise God for Ezekiel and how God used him to preach and his willingness to preach in spite of the fact that they weren't going to listen. And that's it. Father, we have before us, as our brother has just laid it out, a warning. Because what was true of the Israelites could be true of us. That we would not listen to you. Lord, you said to Ezekiel, I have sent you to them who should listen to you. But they did not. Oh, Father, what a tragedy that would be to have that said of us. And we who should listen to you did not. But, Father, certainly at one time or another, to one extent or another, that has been true. Every time we determine to go our own way, that is true. Every time we determine, Father, not to listen to your word, that is true. When the Spirit convicts us and we harden our hearts to the Spirit's work, that is true. And so, Father, we confess that to you today. That in many ways, we are often much like the Israelites. We harden our face. We close our ears. Forgive us, Father. We are not yet what we will be. 
And so we come to you in confession, knowing that you are a gracious God. And that as we do listen to your word, your word tells us that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, in that we rejoice today. The blood of Christ covers our sin. And in your grace, Father, you hold us to yourself as your own possession until the end, until the day we see you face to face. For this, Father, we give you thanks in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer. Amen. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 123, Psalm 123, this section of the Psalms, of course, continues. They are the Psalms of Ascents, those songs that the people sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Psalm 123 says this, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us. For we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Be gracious to us, O Lord. This is our prayer this morning. This is our plea. Be gracious to us. Give us that which we do not deserve. Provide for us, Father, all that is necessary out of the bounty of your goodness and your grace for us as your people to commune with you, to walk with you, and to pursue, Father, your glory in this world. As we read the words of the psalmist, there is a certain familiarity to them. We recognize his world in our own. That there are those who scoff. There are those who are proud and hold your people, your church, your truth, your word in contempt. And so, Father, because this is the world with which we have to do, we pray with the psalmist, be gracious to us. Our eyes look to you as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master. Because, Father, you are the master and we are your servants. You are the one who sits enthroned in heaven. And we look to you, Father, for all things, for we are entirely dependent upon you. We recognize that. 
We confess that today, Father. All that we need comes from your hand. All the good gifts which you have blessed us with come from your hand. The grace which saves us comes from you. The blood which was shed for us was shed, Father, because of what you had done in sending your Son. We are sealed with the Spirit of God because you determined in your grace that when your Son returned to your right hand, you would send the Spirit. We depend upon you, Father, because you have promised that we will not be left where we were when you found us. But you will change us. You will make us and mold us into the image of your Son. And through all of the trials and difficulties of this life, you will take us home to be with you. That is our sure and certain hope. And we rejoice in it. You are gracious to us, Father, in that you provide for your people And there are many, Father, among us who need your provision, who need your care. And so we pray, Father, that you would accomplish good in those who struggle and those who suffer. We recognize, Father, that part of living in this fallen world is living among a people who do not Share our love for you. But Father, we desire that to change. And so we desire that your gospel would go forth. And that as your gospel is proclaimed in this world, your spirit would utilize your word to change hearts. To bring to life those things that are now dead. And to transfer, Father, people who now dwell in the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the the, the kingdom of your beloved Son. Build your church and glorify the name of your Son. May the name of Christ be known. And may you be recognized, Father, as King and Lord over all. And may we, above all else, may your church, above all others, glorify your name. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. The Psalms are, of course, the hymn book of God's people. There is a long tradition within the church, particularly in the Reformed tradition, of worshiping God through the Psalms. And so we want to continue to do that today. Now as we stand and sing what we have just read from Psalm 123.
And as we know, we have our box in the back, and it's a privilege for us to give back to the Lord, for he has been so gracious to us. And now as pastor, and one of those things is our pastor, um, who's going to open the word for us. So let's pray for the word as pastor brings it to us. Father God, we are so grateful for all the ways you've been gracious to us. How you've given us your word, how you've given us this place to worship you and to come together to learn about you. Lord, bless the words of our pastor this day. Thank you for him and his ministry here. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to see and hear your word and what you have to teach us today. Lord, may our ears be attentive to your word and may he speak it clearly in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Well, if you would, take your Bibles with me once more to the book of Leviticus. And we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 14. Tony, turn that back down a little bit, please. Thanks. Uh, chapter 14 this morning. Uh, the last time we were together, we were looking at Leviticus chapter 13, and we saw the problem of these various skin diseases, which caused people to be ritually unclean and therefore unable to come into the presence of the Lord. Leviticus chapter, thir- chapter 14 gives us the solution to that particular problem. So chapter 13, chapter 14, they fit together. The diseases of Leviticus 13 prevented a person from being ceremonially 
clean and therefore prevented a person from coming in among the people of God to the tabernacle to worship God with the people. And therefore the disease is a double curse in that it cut you off from fellowship with your family and the community just on a day-by-day basis, but then it also cuts you off from the Lord, from the community of faith, cuts you off from the experience of the manifestation of the presence of the living God in the gathered worship of His people. And you can imagine how discouraging that must have been to someone who had fallen prey to one of these dreaded skin conditions or diseases. So Leviticus 13 did not stand alone. God provided for his people, Leviticus 14, which stood as a standing marker of hope for all those who are in that condition because it described how In God's mercy, he provided a way for that person who had been declared to be unclean to once again be declared clean and to enter once again into the community of God's people and into the corporate worship of God's people. So every time that person fell ill because of one of these ailments described in Leviticus 13, one who had been declared to be ceremonially ceremonially unclean, that person could also contemplate the mercy of God and look forward to that day when he might once again come back into the presence of God. Leviticus 14 offered the sufferer hope of restoration to fellowship with his family, fellowship with the covenant community, fellowship with the living God in worship. So this is a great chapter of hope, and I hope to demonstrate that this morning. Father, as we turn to your word once again, we listen for your voice We know that you are speaking through your word. And you spoke not only to ancient Israel. You speak to us now, today. And Father, we want to have ears to hear. We want to have hearts that are soft and receptive. And we want to have minds that understand. Accomplish these things for us, Father, today. For we ask it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Well, like chapter 13, chapter 14 is a very long chapter. So we're not going to read all the way through it as we normally would. But I do want to show you what is contained give you something of an outline, tell you what each section of the chapter is doing, and then see what we can draw out of it in the way of application. If you look at the first nine verses of chapter 14, what you're told there is what is to be done for a person 
who has been declared ceremonially unclean to be declared now clean. As they have been sent outside the camp, how can they get back into the camp? And so as the chapter begins, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. You'll remember in chapter 13, we were talking about how one is declared to be unclean. They have to go to the priest, the priest has to inspect them, and then the priest makes the decision, is this something which is going to pass, it's not that serious, it does, it's not uh, a contaminating factor, this doesn't really make anyone unclean, or is it something more than that? Does this skin condition actually make someone unclean and force them to go outside of the camp. But chapter 14, as we come here now, we're not dealing any longer with the declaration of one being unclean. Now we're talking about the day of his cleansing. So it's a brighter chapter than chapter 13. Now we're talking about someone who is being cleansed or has been cleansed. So this is, this is, this is better. And now, in the day of his cleansing, what does he do? He's, he's brought to the priest. And the priest is going to go out to the outside of the camp. Remember, this person had been declared unclean, so they'd been put out of the camp. Now, it's not up for him to decide for himself that he's clean. He can't just waltz back into the camp and go find a priest. The priest has to go to him because it's the priest who will determine whether he is now clean or unclean. And so that's what's happening here in these first nine verses. Will this person be admitted again into the camp, into the fellowship, into the community of God's people? And then in verses 10 through 20, you see the offering of atonement which must be offered by the person who has been cleansed and admitted into the camp. First thing that someone who has now been declared clean must do is to offer a sacrifice. Worship is to be the first act after having been declared clean. He has now been cleansed, he is admitted into the camp, and the very first act that he must perform is an act of worship. First, there was ritual cleansing. There is, after that, an atonement offering. We are going to ask what the logic of this is and what it might teach us about the work of Christ on our behalf, but that is what's happening here in verses 10 through Verses 1 through 9, he's declared clean. He goes through a ritual washing. Verse 10, he is to come and offer a sacrifice. And then as we go down through from verse 21 all the way down to verse 32, there is a provision there for those who are too poor among the people of God to be able to offer that atoning sacrifice which was mentioned in verses 10 through 20 and we've seen this 
over and over, of course. God has always made provision for those without means. And so if the sacrifice under normal circumstances would call for an ox, for instance, if one does not have an ox, if one can't afford an ox, God says there's another way. And so in verse 21, for instance, you read that if he is poor and his means are insufficient, then he is to take one male lamb for a guilt offering as a wave offering to make atonement for him, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and a log of oil, and two turtle doves or two young pigeons which are within his means. The one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. So what a great picture this is of the compassion of our God toward those in need. He makes special provision for those who don't have enough, who don't possess enough to be able to offer the atoning sacrifice as it's described in verses 10 through 20. So he provides an alternative for them so that they may also come before the Lord and offer a sacrifice of atonement. And then from verse 33 all the way to verse 57, the fourth section of this chapter, we have a description of what is to be done in the case of a house or a garment which has been infected either by the skin condition of the individual who had been declared unclean or by mildew or some other manifestation of decay. And that's following, of course, on what we saw in chapter 13 as well. It's not just the person, but also the clothing, also the house. So those are the four sections of this chapter. That's what the Lord is communicating to the people through Moses. You'll remember in verse 1, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses, and then Moses is responsible for communicating these things to the people. And if you've been with us through our study of Leviticus, then everything we've just been talking about, everything that you will find here as you read through the chapter, and I hope you will do that, everything is kind of familiar. Same kind of sacrifices, same kind of provisions made. But there are a number of things that I want us to take out of this chapter this morning. And the first is this. These rites, this ritual, are not physical remedies to heal the disease. That's not what's going on here. That is not where the focus is. Just as when we looked at the dietary laws, there was no emphasis there, no mention at all, in fact, of whether or not this may be a healthier way to eat. There's no statement saying, you know, don't eat pork. 
because it's really bad for you. Don't eat bacon, it's going to clog your arteries. That wasn't the rationale. And in these rituals, the rationale has nothing to do with the healing of the disease. These are not physical remedies, they are spiritual remedies. They are theological remedies. They are rituals for those who have become unclean by way of disease and then subsequently healed. But the issue is not the disease itself. The issue is one's relationship with God and God's people. And the picture that that gives of sin and contamination spiritually the picture of our fallenness and our separation from God, which needs to be dealt with. Now, I mention this because you can look at comparative literature of pagan nations which existed around Israel at the time, and you can see instructions given to the pagan priests regarding incantations and rituals which are designed to heal people of certain maladies and it's striking that in this passage not once does God even vaguely hint that if one performs these rituals it will bring about healing in fact these rituals are to be performed after someone is cleansed they don't bring about physical healing. They bring about ritual cleansing. They bring about a state in this particular person of being declared ceremonially clean in the sight of God and thus suited to come back into fellowship with God and with His people. To be able now to return to the corporate worship of the people of God. Why is that so important? One reason is that it distinguishes the ritual of Israel from the mystical and magical practices of the pagans. We've been seeing this all through our study of Leviticus. God is very concerned that his people be distinct from the nations around them. And this is another way in which that is true. Another way in which that separation takes place this is no magic formula there are no incantations there are no spells or potions or occultic remedies which are going to bring health to the body it's not the point and again, that is very different than the nations around Israel. God had something very different in mind. He desired to teach his people a very different lesson. This is what we've been seeing. Now, of course, as we read earlier in Ezekiel, there was a recurring problem in Israel. they became deaf 
over and over again. They couldn't hear what God had to say to them. Their hearts were hardened. So God would speak. The prophets would speak. And the people could not hear. So it should not surprise us as we're working our way through Leviticus that we're hearing the same thing over and over and over again. Because the people didn't hear very well. Very much like us in that regard. We need to hear the same thing over and over again. So even when you get into the New Testament, this is what Peter says. There's no trouble at all for me to keep reminding you of the same things. And he didn't, you know, add this on, but he could have. Could have said, there's no trouble for me to keep reminding you of these things, because I know what kind of people you are. And the same thing can be said of us. I need to hear the same thing over and over and over again, because I forget. I'm forgetting a lot more these days, but I'm just, in general, I forget. And I need to keep coming back to the Word. And I need to keep hearing the voice of God reminding me. And so, you know, these things that we're talking about, we've spoken about them before. These maladies, which were described in Leviticus 13, were, were maladies that remind us of the impurity that results from the fall of Adam into sin and the introduction of sin into this world and our own personal contamination by sin. These people are affected in a visible way by this impurity. They are not fit ceremonially to come into the presence of God's people or in the presence of God himself because to fellowship with God requires wholeness. It requires purity. This is the point of all of these rituals that we're looking at in Leviticus. When sacrifices are to be without spot or blemish, we are being taught that in order to come into the presence of God, to worship Him in an acceptable manner, there must be perfection. A perfection which we don't meet. We don't exhibit. We don't possess. When God says, if you've got this skin disease, you can't come into communion with me. You cannot worship me with the rest of my people. You've got to be put outside the camp. We are seeing something. We're being taught something. And the thing that we're being taught really has very little to do with our physical condition. It has to do with the condition of our heart. It has to do with our sin. So the purpose of the ritual is not to provide a magical cure for the disease. It is to highlight the way that God provides for a person to be declared clean and accepted into the community of His people and into the worship of the living God. We must be declared clean. 
because we are not. We are unclean. We are impure because of sin. There's another application of all of this truth. The first thing is this. These are not physical remedies. The second follows on it, and it is this. Isn't it interesting that the very fact that the priests of Israel had no rites, no incantations, no rituals given to them by which they could heal points us to the truth that only God can heal. Israel was being told in Leviticus chapter 14 that priests can't heal you. They can only recognize whether or not healing has taken place, but they can't do it. Only God can. The priests can only instigate these rites once God has healed. Look at verse 2. It's interesting how the passage starts. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest. The priests don't even have a role in this until the cleansing has already occurred. Now again, you draw distinctions between what we're seeing in ancient Israel and all the pagan nations around them and all the pagan nations down through history. People go to witch doctors. Why? Because <laughs> they want to be healed. They go to their pagan priests. Why? Because they want to be healed physically. But that's not what's happening here. Now, this doesn't mean that the Lord won't use a doctor in the healing process. He might well have used a doctor. Whether the Lord used a doctor or whether the Lord healed the person directly, Israel was to understand this. God is responsible for healing. And if the Lord did use intermediate means, what someone like what we would today call a doctor, then praise God for that doctor. If God uses a doctor to heal you, we praise God. God for that doctor, but we recognize that even that doctor is a gift from God. Why do we say grace before we eat? When maybe I got my food from the garden, I grew it, or I at least drove to the grocery store and purchase the food that somebody else grew. And then we cook it. I made the meal. Well, yes. But behind all of that is the provision of God for our daily bread. And he is to be worshipped, he is to be thanked. Likewise in this case. The priest, he can't do anything about that disease until God has acted. The remedies come after the healing has come because they are spiritual remedies, not physical remedies. Only God heals. And that is usually important for our third point this morning. Jesus is God because he can heal. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. In our study of Revelation on Wednesday nights, we're constantly going from New Testament back to the Old Testament. When we're in the Old Testament, we want to go back from the Old Testament to the New Testament as well. In Matthew chapter 5 to 7, what do we find? What's in those chapters? I'm actually asking this question. Anybody answer? Sermon on the Mount. Okay, good. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, and what does Matthew say happens right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount? Look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, obviously, there's another sermon in this passage in Matthew. But you see what's going on. Every Jewish listener of that divinely inspired message from Matthew chapter 8 knows what truth only God can heal. And the leopard comes and bows down before him an act of worship and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches the leper and says, I am willing. Be cleansed. Jesus can heal. So Jesus is God. That's Matthew's argument here. Jesus doesn't say, go to the priest... Let him chant some things over you, and I'll pray for you. Maybe you'll be healed. The man says, I know that if you want me to be healed, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I do want to do it. Be healed. Be cleansed. You're clean. Now, go do what Moses said to do when you, became, when you become healed cleansed. Jesus then says go. First he says tell no one but go show yourself to the priest. And that very fact in and of itself is a testimony to Jesus' own proclamation that he is God. Because Jesus knows what's going on. He knows why he's here. He knows that there is a purpose. He knows he's going to the cross. And he knows that there's a timetable. And so he's not ready to come out 
publicly because that would speed up the timetable. And he's got more to do before he goes to the cross. So he says, don't, don't tell anybody about what just happened. Just go and do what Moses said. It'll be many months later when Jesus and the disciples finally get to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asks them, what are people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And they give him a few responses. They've heard from people. But then you'll remember Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the others. You are the son of the living God. But it's not time for that yet. When Peter does say that, Jesus is going to respond that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. So Jesus wasn't ready to make that kind of broad announcement yet, but he was ready to send this man back to the priests as what? A testimony to them. Because those priests knew the law of Leviticus 14, and they knew that they, the priests, could not heal only God can heal. And when that man came to them and they said, well, how did you get healed of your leprosy? And he said, well, there was this man named Jesus and he's from Nazareth and all he did was touch me and I was healed. Wouldn't that create a stir among the priests? And of course, Jesus is quietly beginning to make a testimony to the priesthood concerning who he was. So when Jesus heals the leper here in the New Testament, he's giving us this beautiful testimony as to who he is. God in the flesh. The incarnate one. Now the fourth point that I'd like you to see here in this passage is the grace and the graciousness of God. This ritual provision, which is given for the priests to perform... The law that Jesus calls the offering commanded by Moses in Matthew 8, 4. This ritual itself is a reminder of God's graciousness to his people who are in need. Because it shows how God himself provides a way of restoration for those who once have been declared unclean and then healed. Their fate is not sealed, in other words when they are declared unclean. Someone can contract this disease. They can come and show themselves to the priest. The priest would examine them. The priest could declare them to be unclean and instruct them to get out of the camp. And yet that's not the end of the story. That's not all there is. There is hope. Their fate is not sealed and settled. God provides this way whereby they may be declared to be clean and again welcomed into the assembly of the saints. Now that stands as a reminder to every sinner upon whom the judgment of God has fallen. Upon whom the sentence of 
unclean has been pronounced. That there is a way provided by God Himself to come into fellowship with Him and with His people. And so this passage we're seeing in Leviticus chapter 14 is a passage of grace right there in the middle of the law. Please don't listen to anyone who comes to you and says, you know, the God of the New Testament, he's different than the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, he's, he's loving and gracious, and he, he wants to do good to people, but the God of the Old Testament, he's a, he, he's a meanie. He just wants to destroy everybody. There is grace on every page of the Old Testament. And there is grace here in Leviticus 14. And that grace comes to us in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the evidence that those who were declared to be unclean can be made clean. Because those who were declared to be unclean, that group includes everybody. But God sent His Son so that those who have been declared unclean can be cleansed. That is the heart of the Gospel. That is the starting point of our relationship with God. I am unclean in myself. I have been since my conception. But God has cleansed me through the blood of Christ. And if you have come to faith in Christ, then the same is true of you. We are clean. That's how God sees us. Just and justified. Another thing we need to see in this passage is that we are reminded that in order to be ushered back into the presence of God and in the presence of His people in worship, what has to happen it's repeated three or four times throughout this chapter. Atonement has to be made. It's not enough to be cleansed. To put it in the context of Leviticus 14, it's not enough to no longer bear the marks of the disease. Before you can fully enter into the fellowship of God and His people, Atonement has to take place. There has to be a sacrifice. So this man is healed. He's pronounced clean. But before he can come back into the presence of God, a sacrifice has to be offered. Atonement has to be made. A guilt offering, a sin offering has to be offered in order for him to come back into the presence of God. And that leads us into our final point, which is really two different points, but we'll put them together. And that is this, that God is sovereign in healing 
and healing requires blood atonement. This ritual atonement reminds the person who has been healed of the sovereignty of God in his healing. In this ritual, what had to happen? Two birds are taken. One of those birds is killed. One of those birds is set free. Every time a person participated in this ritual, that person could think back on others of his companions outside the camp who have not been healed as of yet. And he might think, Lord, the one bird died and the one bird flew away. And I've been healed. And my friend outside the camp has not. And that comes down to you, Lord. I could be the dead bird. I could be the man yet unclean. But in your sovereign plan, according to your sovereign purposes, you've determined to cleanse me. And all the praise then goes to you, Father. And none of the credit to me because I'm no better than that man still outside the camp. And yet I've been cleansed. That's grace. That's the question that we all ask at one time or another. Lord, why did you save me and not that person? And there is no answer that the Lord is going to give us for that other than His sovereign grace. But this is what makes it grace. God didn't save me based on anything He saw in me. He didn't save me because I'm such a great guy. I assure you, I'm not. And He knows that. I am dead in my sin until God makes me alive. I am just as dead as anyone else born into this fallen world. And yet I live. Why? Because God willed it. And because God willed it and God did it, I cannot look at myself and say, I'm not so bad after all. I am. I assure you, I am worse than you know. I'm worse than I know. And I know myself pretty well. And I'm pretty bad. But God has saved me. He did it. And I had nothing to do with it except responding. And even my response is His work in me. What a lesson was taught about the sovereignty of God when even that ritual of the birds was performed to remind one of God's ultimate sovereignty in our cleansing, whether physical or spiritual. The person who is then thus cleansed comes and says, Lord, my cleansing is from You. Uh, all praise goes to You. I deserve nothing. 
and you are to be worshipped. Well, the second thing that this ritual tells us is that the restoration requires blood atonement. The restoration into the worship of God, into the community of God's people, to meet with God, it requires blood atonement. And ultimately, because we Christians have the second part of the book, the last chapter in the story, we know where this points. I wonder if you've ever thought about it. Let's say you're a leper. And you've been healed. And you've been declared clean by the priest and you have been welcomed into this ritual as you are outside the camp and the birds have been slaughtered one slaughtered one freed respectively and you've been welcomed back into the fellowship of God's people and you start thinking to yourself am I restored by the blood of that bird is it the blood of that bird that brought me back into God's presence I think that's a question we'd be asking. Did the blood of that bird affect my reconciliation? Well, we've got the second book called the New Testament, which means New Covenant. And that book tells me that the blood of birds and bulls and goats cannot forgive, cannot cleanse. You might have wondered, Lord, since that dead bird reminds me of the unhealed person that is outside the camp and that freed bird reminds me of the cleansing and the healing that you have given to me, could it be that I'm restored because your judgment falls on somebody outside the camp? Maybe I'm atoned for by God's judgment on someone else. And the answer, of course, is not on someone outside the camp in Israel in 1400 B.C. or 1200 B.C. or 1000 B.C. or 200 B.C., but someone outside the camp early in the first century. Not someone, one particular person whose name is Jesus. He was declared unclean. He was declared to be diseased in the eyes of His Father. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that's where all of this ultimately points. It points to the blood of Jesus Christ that sanctifies, that declares you clean, that welcomes you back into fellowship with God's people and into the very presence of the living God. That's where all of this points. It's where the entire book of Leviticus points. It's where the entire Old Testament points. To the fulfillment in Christ. Are you clean? It is only because of Jesus. And if you are not clean, Jesus can cleanse you. Turn from that which makes you unclean and give yourself to Christ. His blood will cover you. His blood will bring you inside the camp.
His blood will reconcile you to God and to the people of God. May God bless the further study of our word, of his word, I should say. Father, thank you. Your word is wonderful, and we are grateful. Your word, Father, is that truth which you have revealed to us in so many ways. Even as we are looking now, Father, at that word you communicated through Moses to the people of Israel, we understand what it's really talking about. We understand that it is to be seen as a tutor to lead us to Christ. And indeed it does, Father. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see more and more clearly Jesus in your word, in every portion, in every place, that you may be glorified and that Jesus may be magnified and that the gospel may be known. In his name we ask it. Amen. Amen.